can't put a name to everyone's face. Um, can anyone? Can anyone, anyone think they can do over half? You can? Justice, go for it. No, I didn't Yeah, yeah, you did. You did. You did. No, you did. I know, I'm going to completely embarrass myself. Go um, for it. Um, ben, Robbie, Henry. Henry, Maya, Sam, Nick, Tate, Clay, Gila, Faith. Faith. Um, Kate, Isabel, close. Close in the alphabet. Um, Danielle. Danielle. And did you get? Um, Marianne. So you got all but one, basically, right? Three. Three. Wait. Okay, Henry. Um. Or four. Henry, Faith, Isabel. Henry, Faith, Isabel. Yeah. Okay. And Clay, did you get? Yeah. Okay, and Danielle. Oh, well, still, not bad. All right, um, I think, you may think that we've hit um, diminishing returns even on the nurse's song. We've only, but, but we haven't. Um, so we're going to talk about, is that a, is that a sly smile? Um, no, Maya seemed to be doing a sly smile. <laughs> so what's your view, Maya? Um, like get on with it? No. No, 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 but no, seriously, say. It's worth saying. No, it's just what you said last time. So Diminishing returns. Maybe, maybe you'll say that a lot. <laughs> say what? That we've hit diminishing returns? I don't yeah, think so. I think. No, we're not. We're, well, we're, we have to get to the experienced version of the song, too. Um, and then we'll loop back to the innocent version. No, I think what happens is, or, or um, what often happens, is um, that there's another level that you hit if you really do, do go through um, um, a poem sufficiently carefully that you get sick of it. Um, when you're first learning to go through poems that, that carefully and that slowly. Um, and then there's something else that happens when you go even further. Um, these are the short, these are in a sense the simplest, not that lullaby is that simple, but these are really the simplest and the shortest poems we'll be doing. When we do longer and more complex, at least on the surface, poems, um, then uh, we won't be fussing so much about um, what might seem very subtle differences or what might seem like fussing isn't getting us um, anything but um, knowing that these words are really hard to capture, their meanings are hard to get exactly right and the fussing doesn't seem to be getting us um, to a more exact sense of them. Um, so I think, you'll, I think you'll find it somewhat less fussy as we go on and as we go to longer poems. Um, but this really is partly just um, like um, finger exercises, warm-ups, for just the kind of thing that it's worth pausing and thinking about, um, the kinds of opacities that it's worth at least um, getting a sense of what makes them opaque, what makes um, it hard to get exactly right um, how a line or a moment is working. Um, I hope we'll get to Casabianca today, the two Casabiancas, and um, <coughs> I hope that if we do, there'll be some payoff there. But I do think there's a payoff in the experienced version of the nurse's song 
as well. So just to um, reiterate a little bit what we said about the innocent version, um, we had a question, whose song is that? And um, one of the ways that we answered it, um, and it's just, it's just noticing something about uh, what kinds of consistency we demand in understanding a poem and what kinds of consistency we don't demand in understanding a poem. Um, so as with the skeleton poem, I think what we agreed about the nurse's song is that we don't have to see the same speaker throughout the poem. That is to say that the poem itself is the speaker um, rather than the nurse being the speaker or some narrator being the speaker or Blake being the speaker, that poems are often polyphonic, um, which is to say that there's more than one voice in a poem. And that like a song um, with more than one singer, um, like a song with a chorus um, or a song you know, by a band, um, a switch in voices doesn't actually throw or shouldn't throw you into a tizzy of confusion. Um, you know, if you're listening to a song by a band and one singer gives way to another singer, um, but they're still singing about the same person or the same situation or whatever, you don't say something like, but wait a second, a minute ago John was saying he was in love with her, but now Paul is singing, and yet they don't seem angry at each other even though they're competing for the same person. What's up with that? I am puzzled. Let us do a close reading. Um, <laughs> That's not something that we do. Um, and the point is that, that something about what we're talking about and talking about lullabies, the reason I wanted to start with lullabies, and there are lots of reasons, but one reason I wanted to start with lullabies is because lullabies are semi-non-individual um, poems. They're semi-public. They're semi-anonymous. Um, lullabies always give you a sense of a situation um, someone who needs soothing, someone who needs to soothe, not only someone who is soothing, but someone who needs to soothe. The lullaby is as important for the singer of a lullaby. I'm just talking about everyday situations. If you have young siblings, you know. Um, the lullaby is just as important for the singer of the lullaby as for the person, um, to wh as for the child to whom the lullaby is being sung. So in that sense, it's a personal situation. But it's also a public situation. Lullabies are well known. Their tunes are well known. The situation is also a generic one. It's not, um, although Auden makes it this, but it's not, I am a unique and deep and um, um, particularly sensitive poet in a world of people who are not so unique and not so deep and certainly not so sensitive as I am and I shall now express myself in my utterance which is you know a parody of a standard kind of poem um, look how deep I am this is being published in the New Yorker I am happy huh. um, despite the fact that I am happy I am sad um, that's not what lullabies are Lullabies are very much about um, a need which is also a general and generally recognized need on the part both of the um, one who should be sleeping and the one who is getting, trying to get that one to sleep. Um, and what that means then is there's a shift in and out of voices, in and out of persons, in and out of personal um, express, expressiveness 
in a lullaby. Um, in and out of a sense of, this is a lullaby that always worked, and my mama used to sing it to me, and um, right now I really, really, really want you to sleep. I want you to sleep. Um, that shifting of voices is something um, that we accept, as I say, in rock songs, we accept them in classical um, music, um, but we sort of don't quite um, know how to talk about it well or easily in discussing poems on a page. Yeah. Um, it's maybe going dangerously off topic, but... Um, in this I, class? <laughs> I think it's, it's funny that you're saying that, and I think that it's very, it's very true that, that all of this is true, that it has a, it's a very human need, and it's very, I think it's very culturally ingrained, because there is, there is nothing to take the place of a lullaby, mm -hmm. and it's really, and that idea of needing someone to go to sleep, which is kind of, you know, it's a very tender, you know, parents, lovers, it's that kind of echelons of, of, of caring, which I think is why... I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the the not the not children's book "Go the Fuck to Sleep." Mm -hmm. um, I think that's why yeah. that became so popular yeah. and so funny. Yeah. was because it 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 really was was a unique concept in in taking this you know this this cultural facet that that does deal with this basic need and kind of you know it, it's yeah. the other side of it is that parents you know love their children and care for them but also really. Want them to get the fuck to sleep. Yeah. 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 Um, no, absolutely. And um, again, that's something that is both um, <laughs> really the bursting out of conventional bounds when yeah. you say go the fuck to sleep, um, but it's also something that's universally recognized. Um, all you need to know about that book is its title. Yeah. Um, and everyone will say, oh, I've got to get that book because I know just what they're talking about. Um, yeah. So, um, again, that it, it is that shift, that sort of morphing. Um, I mean, or, or, you know, another example is you have absolutely no trouble with this with music videos. Um, you know, with, with um, the intense rapid fire cutting from one scene to another, from one singer to another, um, that you get in music videos all the time. Um, lip syncing, um, two different people lip syncing the same voice. Um, uh, one person lip-syncing different voices, all that kind of stuff, that's just how, um, or that's a way of saying that what the through line is in the poem is the poem itself. What the through line is in a song is the song itself. It doesn't matter if different people are singing different words. Sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes you get dialogue songs and so on. Um, actual dialogue songs, you know, think of Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, um, for example. But generally, the through line is the song. The through line is um, the words themselves. So that basic rule allows poetry for an enormous amount of, again, what in music videos would be cutting. It allows poetry an enormous amount of morphing of perspectives, of going from voice to voice without that, that shift from voice to voice um, throwing us too much and making us um, try to make this a more realistic utterance. Poetry is not realistic utterance. It's often and usually the utterance of something real, but it's not a realistic way of saying those things. So to go back to the nurse's song, 
uh, the the Innocent Nurses song. Just the first thing that we noticed, um, not the first thing we noticed, but uh, what I want us to uh, return to now is that the um, first stanza seems to be the nurse speaking when the voices of children are heard on the green. Did you have? Did you pull out a copy of Songs of Innocence yesterday? Um, yeah. Can you dig up the illuminated version of that, of the Innocence version I of the nurse's on, song? I on Amazon and I'm scared because it looks like someone just took it out of a library. Yeah, and sold it? Yeah. It might. It's really beautiful and I, yeah. Wait, is there a library mark there's on like it? A, there's no mark, but oh. there's this, like, it came in this sheet. Oh, no, that's okay. No, no, no. Someone gave it to them for, for Christmas and they wanted the money. And the last thing they wanted was some dumb poetry. <laughs> um, gotcha. It was their grandmother. It was beautiful. The experience one? Um, no, the innocence one. Um, which is many pages earlier. Um, so at any rate, the first stanza, while, while Jesse's finding it, the first stanza, when the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill, we don't know um, whose voice that is yet. But then we get to, my heart is at rest within my breast and everything else is still. So in line three, we become aware that this is a first-person poem. Um, this is the illumination. You can see the nurse under a tree and the children um, dancing around. Everyone knows Blake did his own illustrations, right? Um, oh, you didn't know? No, that's why it's, it's this nice book exists. Um, Blake was a visual artist as well as a poet. Um, some people will say, God, it's amazing. He's one of the greatest um, painters in the history of England. He's also one of the greatest poets in the history of England. He's not one of the greatest painters in the history of England. He's really, really good. But as a poet, um, he's up there with the greatest English poets who ever lived. As a painter, he is not up there with the absolute greatest. Um, he's, on a, he's in a middle level of excellence. Um, he's still highly influential and really great. But... Um, it's, uh, he really is one of the great poets in, in human history, and he's, um, you know, a really important, but not one of the absolute greatest um, painters or drafts persons in human history. Do you so want to disagree? Sort of like the Michael Jordan of, uh, <laughs> of the English literature world. Slide yeah, like his base, painting is baseball, and is that what you meant? And poetry is basketball. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Michael Jordan tried to play baseball, and despite being such a fantastic athlete, he couldn't quite do it. Um, and what was the name of that football and baseball player? Bo is probably before your time. There's a guy who was playing Major League Baseball and football um, simultaneously, and he would play football in, until the football season ended. Um, and then I guess he played baseball until the football season started. That's what it was. He played for Kansas City, and then he took a hideous hit and... Um, broke his hip and that was it for his sports career and everyone forgot him and you don't even know who he is. He's both bo something. Um, it was really a dreadful thing. Um, at any rate, um, so we know, and this is an in interesting and important point to know in general, we know in the third line that this is a first person poem, that a speaker is speaking this and that that speaker is the nurse. Um, until that third line, we don't know that. Until the third line, it could be the narrator or Blake or some omniscient narrator of poetry telling us this. It could be when the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill, the nurse sits at rest 
um, on top of her nest and likes that things are still. Um, yeah, see, that's why I wouldn't be in the NBA. Um, but the point is, my heart, that's when we know the nurse is speaking. It's a general and interesting fact that you can tell as early as the first word of a narrative of any kind of story, you can tell as early as the first word of any kind of story that it's a first-person story. Um, but you may not know until the last word of any kind of story that it's a third-person story. Um, when you find out that something is first-person, um, then you know what kind of narrative you're dealing with. But technically, although it's extremely rare, but technically, um, you may not know for sure that something is third person until you get to the very end. Um, so if you think anyone know the first sentence of Moby Dick? Call me Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. So you know in the second word that it's a first person narrative. Um, but you might have a long description, you know, the river wound its way through the valley um, and the happy people um, sat in their huts chewing betel nuts and um, playing chess with each other while far above airplanes dropped cargoes of, of new chess pieces because they would eat the chess, the chess pieces after they lost. And you could go on for, you know, two pages of description and then you could have a sentence saying something like, I got to this place on January 14th, 1842, when the airplanes were flying. Um, and it's only then that you would realize it was a first-person narrative. Um, so here, that's something that a good writer um, in an opening of a work of literature will play with. Um, you're not knowing whose voice it is, and a writer will tell you whether it's her voice or some narrator's voice at a time of her own choosing. Um, and sometimes you'll want to do that immediately, call me Ishmael, and sometimes you won't want to do it for quite a while. In Samuel Beckett's Watt, for example, we don't find out that Watt is a first-person narrative until part three of the novel. Um, that is, say, well over halfway through do we find out that it's a first-person narrative. Um, and, of course, that changes everything. Uh, there's a famous book by Alain Globrier called La Jalousie. It used to be a standard French 101 text, but then it was felt to be too violent and sexist. Um, uh, but does anyone know it? It's the, the title, La Jalousie, could mean either jealousy or Venetian blind. Um, because that's what, have you ever heard of, of jealousy blinds? They're another way of describing, they're, they're the, what in French we often call Venetian blinds, um, blinds, film noir blinds with slats. When they translate it in English, they just translate it as the Venetian blinds, don't they? Do they? I've seen it translated as jealousy, but um, maybe a smarter translator got a hold of it. Have you read it? No, but I've seen it on a bookstore. It's called okay. the Venetian blinds. Unless it was just like an art, an art home decoration book. Uh, that too. Venetian blinds. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> at any rate, um, just to give you a spoiler, an unfortunate spoiler for this book, but there you go. Um, it's a first-person narrative and you ne which never uses the word I, never uses the word je. Um, you won't understand what's going on in the book even after you've finished it. You'll close the book and you won't understand what's gone on in the book unless you suddenly get a flash and say, wait a second, that was first-person, wasn't it? Um, and if you realize that it was a first-person narrative, it changes everything. 
And how would you realize it was a first-person narrative? Well, the hint that Loebrier gives you throughout is that whenever um, there's a dinner party, whenever there's games being played, whenever there are deck chairs um, uh, put outside on the patio, there's always one more of everything than the number of characters who seem to be in the scene. Um, and at first you might think, oh, it's Elijah. But it's not. It's the narrator. Um, and um, when you realize that it's a first-person narrative, you realize what's happened in the book, um, which you didn't realize before. Of course, the narrator is jealous, and it's like he's looking at everything from behind blinds, and that's why he never mentions himself, but we become aware that we are seeing through his eyes. Like a shot in a movie where you see some people talking and then the camera pulls back, and it turns out someone is, seeing, is watching them talk, it wasn't just the camera saying, oh yeah, these people are talking. It was the camera saying, uh-oh, and Mortimer sees them talking. Um, this is like a shot in a movie that does that, except <coughs> it never pulls back, and only when the movie is over do you realize, wait, maybe that was all point of view shot. Um, maybe that's what was going on. And then everything becomes clear. Yeah. Oh, no, I was thinking of something different. Okay. So, Nurse's song, we realized line three, that she's the one... Um, singing. Title tells you that. When the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill, my heart is at rest within my breast and everything else is still. Then she calls to them, but one thing that if you looked at not the picture but the way Blake wrote it on um, over the picture in that version, there are no quotation marks. Um, quotation marks are a huge danger in poetry, in um, modern editions of poetry written before um, the middle of the 19th century. Quotation marks are, um, editors think they're helping you by putting in quotation marks. But of course the problem with quotation marks is they strictly delineate a change of voice that Blake doesn't do. So cross them out and think how different it is if the then there isn't my heart is at rest within my breast um, and everything else is still and then she we realize immediately that she's addressing the children then come home my children um, as though we're cutting into a different scene the then seems to pick up from and everything else is still and then we get something that feels like a chorus if you don't have quotation marks there do you see how it would be different without the quotation marks the voice doesn't change. Um, what you would get instead is, and everything else is still, then come home, my children. That could be as universal a line as, my, as when the voices of children are heard on the green. Then come home, my children. The sun has gone down and the dews of night arise. Um, the editors think they're telling you, okay, what you have to understand is she's describing a general thing in the first stanza, and now in the second stanza, she's saying, oh, it's getting dark, you guys have to come home. But it sounds more like a spiritual almost if you get rid of the quotation marks. That is, my heart is at rest within my breast, and everything else is still, and then that stillness is, and you guys too join it then come home, my children. This is all wonderful. It's all part of the same atmosphere. And you would really understand the word then as more important without the quotation mark. The then would be something like um, 
What's so wonderful about the peace that I feel is that I can share it with the children too. And I can sing to them about this very state that I've described in the first stanza. Do people see, do people see that, 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 it's, that we're not shifting um, as sharply as the quotation marks seem to make us shift? Then come home, my children, the sun has gone down and the dews of night arise. Come, come, leave off play and let us away till the morning appears in the skies. And there it's somewhere in that stanza, it starts feeling like she's actually addressing them. But it doesn't happen suddenly. The whole world has a kind of um, integrity and a kind of um, um, presence to itself um, that allows us to go from they're playing and now they're coming home. And it's all part of the same experience. Experience, I don't mean as in songs of experience, but it's all part of the same feeling. Um, night and day, it's all good. Um, and then they reply, again without quotation marks, no, no, let us play, for it is yet day, and we cannot go to sleep. Um, we're not ready to go to sleep. It's still day. But their interaction with her is part of the thing that she's liking so much. Um, she's, hearing the, she's hearing their voices when they say that. Um, no, no, let us play for this yet day and we cannot go to sleep. Besides, in the sky the little birds fly and the hills are all covered with sheep. Well, well, go and play till the night, till the light fades away and then go home to bed. And then the little ones leap it and shouted and laughed and all the hills echo ed. And that feels like it's no longer her voice and no longer their voice. That is that somehow the poem itself has um, agreed, has produced a frame for the world that it's framed, which includes the dialogue between the nurses and children. That dialogue between the nurse and the children, that dialogue itself being an example of how wonderful it is to hear the voices of children. Um, but it's a much smoother feeling a much smoother transition from one to the other. Finally framed with the poem saying, yes, it's great. Um, the little ones leap it and shout and laugh and all the hills echo ad, um, which is exactly how the poem starts. Um, laughing is heard on the hill. It still happened. Um, so whose voice is the poems? Um, in a way, that's the wrong question. But in another way, the answer is that it's the poem's voice itself. Yeah, Maya. Okay, good. Um, now, one of the things, just this is a good segue actually into the experience version of the song. One of the things you guys were saying yesterday, um, or something <coughs> you were suggesting yesterday, is that the experience version tells you what the nurse is really thinking. Um, and let's, let's say that that's right. That is, that in the experience version, which is only um, half as long, it's two stanzas rather than four, um, here's what we get. When the voices of children are heard on the green, same first line, right? And whisperings are in the dale. So the same first line tells you 
that the, that the difference really brings out the difference in the second line. Um, so what is, it, what is the difference in the second line, just quickly? There are two differences. Yeah, so, so in the first one it's laughing, in the second it's whispering, and um, somehow coordinated with that is the difference between Dale and Hills. Um, what were you going to say? Yeah, it's the idea of a lowness, a sinking. A sinking. Um, also a place to hide. That is, you can see the children on the hill, but they're from, but from the perspective, do you want to get out the um, experience version now? From the perspective of um, where the nurse is sitting, um, she can't see them. She can hear them whispering. The very fact that she hears whispering means they're hiding, um, and hiding in a way that she's suspicious of. Yeah. So is a dale just like a valley then? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's it's not uh, quite. I generally I think the feeling is it's not quite as deep as a valley. It's it's a sort of meadow, but a but a meadow that is sinking a little bit out of sight. Okay. I mean, in in this perspective, it would be a meadow that's that's lower than. Um, uh, it's related to the word dell, as in the farmer in the dell, oh, okay. um, and yeah, it, it's in it's it's in a hilly landscape. What isn't the hill? Um, so, yeah. Um, so here she seems. Um, oh, it's kind of peculiar. It's actually a very interesting picture. Um, just take a look at it. Um, Notice here, by the way, that the Norton people didn't screw up with quotation marks. Um, you would expect that the editors who put quotation marks um, before then come home, my children, in the innocent version would do the same in the experienced version, but they don't. Um, so if you are simply trying to figure this out from the Norton, it's not in this edition. It's in, it, it's, uh, this is the Norton Anthology of English Literature that I, that I Xerox this from. Um, if you were trying to simply understand the poem by comparing the Norton printings, not only do they foist these quotation marks onto it, but they don't do it consistently. Um, so people, what are you going to do? Um, when the voices of children are heard on the green and whisperings are in the dale, the days of my youth rise fresh in my mind. That could be a good thing, but then we get my face turns green and pale. So not a good thing. The days of my youth rise fresh in my mind. My face turns green and pale. Then come home, my children, the sun has gone down. Again, same line. And the dews of night arise. Your spring and your day are wasted in play. And your winter and night in disguise. Um, so that's a much more chilling version. Um, who's experienced in the second version? The so nurse. The nurse, yeah. And what is her experience the experience of? Aging. Aging. Um, the days of her youth are gone. Her face turns green and pale. Why green? Sick. Sick, but what's green the, the standard color of? Naivety. Mariel? Envy? Envy? Jealousy? Um, I don't think she's naive, in, not the experienced nurse. Um, so jealousy, and in particular, what kind of jealousy? Remember Othello, or if you don't, 
I will remind you. Do you know? Wait, I'm trying to remember how it goes. Um, yes. What is it as well? Green-eyed monster. Uh-huh. That, um, so beware of jealousy, my lord. It is the green-eyed monster. Do you know how it goes on? That mocks the meat it feeds on. Um, so jealousy is in particular the green of jealousy. We talk about being green with envy. Um, but that's, a, that's I believe, a, an Americanism which tones down a little bit. Um, what the green of jealousy really is, which is sexual jealousy. Um, that's, that's what the green-eyed monster in Othello is. Othello is um, tormented by sexual jealousy. See, we go from Rogrier's jealousy to um, Othello's jealousy. What sexual jealousy would she be having? Or does it make sense? What does it do for the poem? to see this as sexual jealousy. Yeah. I mean, the aspect it could add to it was that, you know, the, the, the play the children have could be not so innocent. Yeah. And she could she could be jealous of that. Okay, so whisperings are in the Dale. So it's not that the kids are running around. Do you guys ever walk by Lemberg? Um, so those kids are just running around and screaming and... Um, you're not imagining that they're whispering things that they shouldn't be whispering to each other. Um, but if you walk by Waltham High, um, you will perhaps hear whispering, which you will read in a completely different way. Um, so when the voices of children are heard on the green, fine. But then what are those voices? In the innocent version, it's Voices of laughter, delight, pure joy, um, pre-sexual life, you could say. Um, and whisperings are in the Dale, not whisperings are heard in the Dale. Yeah. I was thinking about that also. And the thing is, like, he had to take out one of them because laughing is heard. You yeah. can't say whisperings are heard because they're yeah. syllables. Yeah. But, but he could have written... When the voices of children are heard on the green and whisperings heard in the day, exactly. that would have made more sense. So I think maybe by replacing heard with are, it's sort of reinforcing whisperings. Uh -huh. Because if you don't say that they're heard, it's just they're there, and yeah. she has no idea what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. So that's why she's imagining all kinds of things. Yeah, no, there's just whispering. And, she, and the point is, no, she doesn't know what they're saying. And she knows that that in itself is suspicious. And what would you be suspicious of? Well, there are two things that you could be suspicious of if whisperings are in the Dale. One is that they're talking about her. Um, and the other is that they're talking, well, I guess there are three. They could be talking about drugs, but not in um, 1793. Or they're talking about sex. So they're, talk they're either talking about her or they're talking about something illicit and the illicit thing that they would be talking about would be sex. Um, and if it is something illicit that they're talking about, um, what pushes us towards that is that her response to that is that the days of my youth rise fresh in my mind, my face turns green and pale. So that tells you that she, what, how does she know that they're whispering We'll just say, unless anyone wants to object to this, um, we'll just say, eh, all right, we'll say they're whispering about sex. But another way of not simply assuming that is to say, um, how does her line tell us 
my face turns green and pale, how does that tell us whether, whether she thinks they're whispering about her or whispering about sex? Yeah. I mean, if she, they were whispering about her, she would probably be angry. Yeah. You don't turn green when you're angry. Yeah, or pale. It, 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 turn pale if you're angry, but well, if you can pale in a color, color, you would not turn green. You would turn like red. Yeah. 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 She could be more embarrassed than angry, but that would also be red instead of green. Right. So the same thing. But I was wondering, like, Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but like green and pale at the same time, unless she's like a pale green. <laughs> I was wondering how that coexists. Um, yeah, I think um, I think it's an interesting question, and I think it's um, yeah. Well, I mean, if these kids are at the age of growing up to the point where they would be whispering about sexual stuff, that's probably scary for the nurse. So um, I think pale is. That she's getting old. Getting old, good. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> or she's contracted scurvy and they're whispering about the values of lemons and limes in the diet. Clearly. Clearly. Um, limes especially. The lemons are the pale and the limes are the green. Yeah. Um, good. I think we nailed it and we should move on. Um, how would she know that they're whispering about sex? Let's, let's say that we, that we now agree on that. Um, just a, one, one answer, by the way, to your question, Gil, is, I think is that how does she know her face is green and pale? Um, there's no hint that she's looking in a mirror. Um, it's more as though what she's doing is describing herself um, from the outside. Um, to describe, she's, she's giving herself an external description that she can't literally have because she's not saying, oh, look how green and pale my face is as I hear that whispering. So interesting. Or, you know, I'll, I'll click the icon on the iPhone that lets me see myself. Um, yeah. Um, I, I'm not familiar with, like, the sort of job description of a nurse in the, you know, 18th century, but, like, would she be taking care of a number of different children from different families? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because otherwise it's sort of incestuous. Yeah, no, no, she's taking um, care of children of different families. If you, if you remember the innocence um, illustration, it's a bunch of kids dancing in a round. Um, and in the experience one, it's, it looks actually like they're two nurses. Um, one of whom is is doing the hair of the of her of her ward, and the other of whom is sitting there watching it. If, and if she's sitting there watching, everyone has has a vague fix on the on Blake's illustration of that. If she's sitting there watching it, the question is: Is she watching herself doing the child's hair, or is she watching another nurse doing the child's hair? If it's another nurse, it would be the nurse from Innocence. If it's herself, it might still be the nurse from Innocence. Um, so, so the illustration, I mean, I think the poem stands on its own, but the illustration at least raises questions, um, if not giving answers. Yeah. Two things. First of all, for some reason this poem really reminds me of The Turn of the Screw. Yes, good. I exactly. Something about, I don't know. Yeah, The Turn of the Screw is a governess. Children, is, sexual discovery. Yeah, like that. yeah. Also... Um, what we could say, just to, just to, put, to, to um, put a marker on your marker for The Turn of the Screw, is when you read Turn of the Screw, those of you who haven't, you may have to decide 
whether the governess is more like the nurse from the songs of innocence or more like the nurse from the songs of experience. That, in a sense, is going to be your question throughout as you read it. Yeah, go ahead. Also, I found the child's stance in the picture mm -hmm. very interesting. She's The nurse is doing her hair, and she's got kind of her hands on her hips, right? Yeah. I don't really remember. But, yeah. And she's looking very defiantly out of the picture. It's yeah. much more, like, it's not a very childish picture. No. Do you guys know Balthus, the paintings of Balthus? Um, so write it down and just, uh, you, do, you do know them? No. Okay. Yeah. Write it down, B-A-L-T-H-U-S. Um, I think you'll recognize them. They're really disturbing uh, mid-20th century paint. Uh, he's a mid-20th century painter. Is he the one that did, uh, like, Saturn eating his children? No, no. I don't think so. I don't recall that. No, he has lots of interiors of um, adolescents who um, are very hard to read. So B-A-L-T-H-U-S. Can I turn this on? It's not worth it. Um, seriously, do look at him. Maybe I'll maybe I'll try to post a couple of images from um, Google Images. Yeah, Rob. Uh, well, uh, just back like uh, back to um, how we know that she thinks that the whispering. The way the way that I took it is she doesn't at all, but it's what happened in her youth. Uh huh. The, good. It, the you know race fresh in her mind when I was a child. It's like deja vu. Yeah. And this is what we were doing. Exactly. That is what. Yeah. Also, the Henry. reason she might know that she's green and pale is she might have seen her nurse when she was a kid turn green and pale. Oh, good. Yeah, while well, she was... So it could, that could be both versions of Whispering. Um, here, let's smooch and, um, and pet. And, oh, we got to be careful because that ridiculous nurse with her green and pale face is coming up. That might have been her... No, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, Nick. Also, green and pale is a contrast to red and flushed, which is what the children would be. Right. So... Exactly. Yeah. Um, good. So what we could say then is, and I think, I think what, what pushes the idea that her suspicion is that they're engaged in sexual research, to quote Freud. Are you disagreeing? What? Oh. Was that a sigh of disagreement? Oh, no, I was completely... Hmm. Oh, Freud. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, Freud is, he, he does use this wonderful term, the sexual researches, infantile sexual researches which is basically kids trying to figure out what is going on when their parents tell them not to bother them and to go to bed now, to go the fuck to sleep now. Um, that's very interesting to children. Um, so she says, then come home, my children, the sun has gone down and the dews of night arise. Um, and here the dews of night really are scarier dews than they are in the Song of Innocence. Your spring and your day are wasted in play. That could just be proto-Victorian, um, you must work harder and not waste your time playing and we're getting rid of recess. Um, but the play there is also at least potentially sexual play. And the last line makes that fairly clear. And your winter and night in disguise. Um, that is, what disguise would that be? Um, there has to be a sexual component to it without having to specify that further. Um, yeah. The way I read the disguise was an analysis of herself. If you want to yeah. take uh, spring and day as childhood and winter yeah. and night as adulthood or old age, it's pretending you don't know what they're doing down there, pretending Yeah. Pretending yeah. you still share in their childish you know, stuff, even though you know it's not really there anymore and it's gone. Right. Good. So now what we can... Yeah, Gila. I don't know. I read initially, maybe in a more literal sense, 
as disguised, like playing dress up? Um, it's such a strong word, though. I mean, disguise is not, um, you know, now you can, I think it's, it's sort of post-Dick Tracy. Disguise is, is a game as in, oh, I've disguised myself um, as, um, you know, a, a, as uh, a patron of this criminal den of iniquity so that no one will know I'm actually Dick Tracy, who is a master of disguises. But that's, I think, a 20th century thing. Disguise is a much stronger and worse wor word in the 19th and 18th centuries. Um, people don't disguise, the, to, you don't disguise yourself innocently. Um, you don't disguise, you couldn't get a, you couldn't go to Toys R Us and get a disguise kit um, and with the word disguise being okay. It's, it's the implication here is a strong implication of deceit and hypocrisy. Um, and um, it's what Satan does, is he disguises himself in various ways. Um, so just as a historical point, it's a much stronger and, and um, bracing word than it would now, than it would be now. Um, and that's part of what gives it the sexual edge, that they're pretending to be innocent, but I know better. Um, they're pretending to um, be childlike, but I know better. Um, what we can do now is loop back to the Song of Innocence. Yeah. Also, can you think of disguise as they're disguising themselves as adults or almost like they are playing dress-up, but... Well, but it, again, it's... A child wouldn't do that unless the child already were an adult. In other words, be, disguise is, is an adult thing to do. Okay. Or to use Blake's terms, which are somewhat better than child and adult, it's an experienced thing to do, not an innocent thing to do. Um, it's deceitful. And so it's not, it's not play except in the sense that play means sexual play. In other words, the word, what you really need to see is that play is, um, is a potentially ambiguous word in the penultimate line. Your spring and your day are wasted in play. That could just be she's a jerk. She doesn't see how, how children need to play and how wonderful play is and so on. Um, but when you get to in your winter and night in disguise, that's sneaking around um, to get into someone's bed at night um, and pretending not to and pretending that you're innocent when you're not. And that then um, um, uh, has a backwards effect on the word play in the previous line, which is still in your mind, um, as meaning something like petting in the park, to quote Gold Diggers of 1933. Um, that is, um, as meaning something like sexual play rather than innocent play. But now, here's the question. Put the poems together. And don't think that Blake changed his mind. Um, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. But the important thing to know, again, is that Blake wrote a poem called Songs of Innocence. He then wrote a, he then, I mean, a book called Songs of Innocence. He never published a second book called Songs of Experience. Um, if you ever take the GREs, you need to know this. There is no book called Songs of Experience. What there is is a first book called Songs of Innocence and then a second book called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. And he did not say, oh man, this is what I used to think, but now um, I'm going to write a book about what I really think. Um, what he did instead was he wrote a book where he wants those poems paired, the paired poems. He wants them paired. 
Um, if you think of, we talked about the tiger a little bit, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. I think it's actually on the sheet that you have. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Um, and that pairs in the Songs of Innocence to a poem called The Lamb which begins, little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee, gave thee life, and bid thee feed? Through the dales and o'er the mead, gave thee clothing of delight, soft as clothing, woolly bright, gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? That's the first stanza. The second to last stanza of the tiger ends, did he who made the lamb make thee? And the answer is yes. He who made the lamb also made the tiger. You don't know enough about God if you think, oh, God made the lamb. Um, you know something, but not enough. You have to know that not only did he make the lamb, he also made the tiger. So you have to know that not only is there an innocent version of the nurse, there's an experienced version of the nurse. So now let's ask, and this is, this is really, I'm going to say this in a minute, but this is really um, what I want us to get to. If we ask who besides Blake, if there is a single speaker of the poem um, that is a single producer, a single presenter of the poem. Um, I was describing that at the beginning of class as the voice of the poem itself. But let's say that a poem is a gesture in which someone presents the poem to you, the reader, and that that person will frequently be the poet, but not always. Clearly, you can't say that about Blake because of the huge inconsistency between the Song of Innocence version of the nurse's song and the Song of Experience version of the nurse's song. It's not that Blake said, here, here's what I think, and then gives you both poems because he can't think both things. So who is the presenter of the innocent version of the nurse's song? And here's my answer. Those are innocent children imagining what the nurse thinks about them. In other words, the problem that we have is the nurse in the Song of, of Innocence is certainly old enough to have had sexual experience. Um, old enough that when she was an adolescent, she did what we find out that she knows about in the Song of Experience. So in the Song of Experience, the nurse knows or thinks she knows what the kids in the Vale are doing, in the Dale are doing, because she did the same thing. That's why she's now, um, the days of her youth come back to her when a nurse was watching her and she was sneaking off with people into the Dales and, and they were um, whispering and, and having sexual delight, which is now over. And now these other kids are doing it and she's jealous. But if that's true, then the nurse in the Song of Innocence should also have had that sexual experience. Yeah? Maybe the children are different ages and the different, I mean, it could be the difference between three and 13. Oh, sure. In the song yeah, yeah, there's no question about that. Um, but Blake ostentatiously doesn't tell you that. He wants you to think of, and so here's how I would say the children are different ages. The children imagine, just put this in your pipe and smoke it, not your hash pipe, your just regular plain <laughs> corn cob tobacco pipe, um, that, that um, since we were talking about drugs um, as what they weren't doing in the, in the Dales, um, in the Song of Innocence, um, you can imagine that these are six-year-old kids. This is following up on what Gillis said. These are six-year-old kids thinking, here's what the nurse thinks about us 
we love the nurse. She's so kind. And here's what she thinks about us. Um, Six-year-old kids who really love their babysitter and who are totally wrong about what that babysitter, who, who have no clue about some of the things that are going on in the babysitter's life. Um, oh, she brought her boyfriend. It was so cute. They ate popcorn. Um, I wonder if they've ever kissed. Um, <laughs> so you get the sweetness of the kids exactly right if you imagine that these children are the ones who are imagining that this is the nurse's song. The children, the innocent children, have come up with a poem called Nurse's Song, and this is what they come up with. In the experienced version, it's more like adolescent children have come up with, and this then gets the two versions of whispering. Oh man, here we are having all this illicit and kind of dirty and scary and guilt-inducing but wonderful sexual delight. She must be green and pale. And so what they then do is the adolescent children might be the presenters of the experienced nurse's song. But of course, the adolescent children are the ones who are now turning into the kind of adult that a real adult, a real nurse would be. So it's not only that they're parallel that way, but that the second one is more accurate because the children are growing to be the age that the nurse is as well, and they see that future coming. Um, but I think the crucial thing to feel here, especially in the innocent version, I'm sorry to keep you, but it's, it's just it's the end of the week. Um, the crucial thing to feel here is the extent to which we can figure out who the speaker of that first poem is, who the final speaker of the first poem is. Um, and it's the children themselves who are imagining the nurse imagining them. And it's all a, a wonderful, tight, closed circuit, and it's great. Um, that they feel that this is what their nurse thinks about them. Um, but the play of voices is complicated and subtle. In a way, it's an anti-lullaby because it's the children now um, thinking about the adult's experience that the adult isn't actually having, whereas the lullabies we were looking at were the adults um, singing about the children's experience, knowing that the children didn't understand what they were saying. Um, but the, the subtlety and complexity and, and density of that, of that reverberation of voices back and forth is something that Blake is amazing at. All right, um, Casabianca on Monday. So we did incredible, we did a poem and a half today. That's really pretty amazing.